Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. My guest this week, Election Week, an unusually early episode because of it, is David Frum. David is a longtime conservative commentator. He writes for The Atlantic. He's worked for many think tanks. He worked as a speechwriter for George W. Bush. And he's been one of the sharpest observers of this election all the way through. He has been writing for years about what has been going on and what has been going wrong in the Republican Party. He has been very, very early, I think, in understanding the strange dynamics of conservative media and the way it was taken, the Republican Party and the conservative movement more generally into a strange place. He was early in understanding what Donald Trump was and why he was succeeding and why the American political system was more vulnerable to him than people believed. He has a great internationalist perspective. We talk about his background in Canada. Uh, he's from Canada and his work in the UK and the way it gives him, I think, a, a perspective on U.S. institutions and their relevance to what is happening in American politics that you don't often hear. Overall, this is just a great conversation for understanding what the hell is happening in the U.S. election right now. I learned a lot from it. We covered a lot of ground in it. There's a lot about not just Donald Trump, but Ronald Reagan, the Republican Revolution, what the Republican Party actually is and is about, what Republican voters want, how Hillary Clinton thinks and would govern. There is a tremendous amount here. It is a good thing to listen to here before the election or after the election, if that is when you are listening to it. As always, a couple quick requests before we get started. Please check out my other podcast, The Weeds, where we talk policy with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. This week is also a election episode trying to look very deeply at the policy of the two major party candidates. I think you'll enjoy it. Please email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. And of course, share this fine episode at Twitter. Facebook, wherever our fine podcasts are shared. All that said, here's David Frum. David Frum, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. So how did a nice Canadian boy like you get wrapped up in a dirty American game like this? So you're looking for the story where I swam the St. Lawrence River with nothing but a few parcels and <laughs> uh, items and parcel above my head and then made my way southward through New York State. I am. Um, I've always known you're that kind of refugee. Frostback. Yes. Frostback. I... Uh, come from a border family. My mother's family's from Niagara Falls, Ontario. Her own mother commuted back and forth to work across the bridge. She taught school in Niagara Falls, New York, and they lived in Niagara Falls, Ontario. I went to school in the United States. I was there for the 1980 election. Reagan transfixed me the way he did a lot of people of my generation. Um, when you went to school, you mean college? College, yeah. Had yeah. you been political when you were younger? Did you have a political family? My family was was a media family. My father's a businessman, my late mother, my late father. My late mother was a prominent journalist in Canada. They were not directly political, but they had a lot of political friends. 
And I, I worked on my first campaign in 1975 in an Ontario provincial election. My parents had a friend who was a New Democratic Party candidate, Socialist Party, but he had a real operation. He was in a very ethnic neighborhood. And so I volunteered and knocked on doors. That was my sort of introduction to the mechanics of politics, door knocking, serving donuts, discovering that most people care a lot more about how a candidate feels about them than what he will do for them. That's an interesting line. What, what made you think that? In this riding, so heavily Polish, other Eastern European groups, you know, sort of lower middle class, more than, than working class mix, far west end of Toronto. So the candidate who was himself a from a, he was from a Polish aristocratic family. He always wore the most expensive clothes, the most and the most dandyish clothes. He wore two toned shoes. Uh, he would wear white suits in summer. He was a psychiatrist. Um, he spoke many many languages. Um, he had some you know again very distinguished descent back in back in Poland. Uh, you would think it just could not be a worse mix, and he was quite non doctrinaire in his politics. But he had a way of making the, everyone he met feel like. When he was talking to them, that was the most important conversation in the world, that there was nothing he wouldn't do for them. There was no problem that was too unimportant. People would often say, this is not an important problem. And he would say, it's your problem. It's an important problem. And then he would do whatever it took to address that problem. Many of them non-political, should be said. And he kept that seat as long as he wanted it. And so when you come to the U.S., one of the things I'm always interested in, particularly when you move between countries that are pretty close uh, as Canada and America are, what is the difference in the party division? Oh, one of the things I, I play in three countries. So I'm also the, in Britain as well. I'm the chairman of the board of um, an important British think tank policy. Exchange. And what? New Zealand is just chop liver to you? <laughs> a little far uh, in economy just across the care Pacific. About Australia. <laughs> I've never been to Australia, unfortunately, <laughs> but I'm very actively involved in Canadian and U.S. politics. My sister is a member of the Canadian Senate, and we often talk about those things. And many of my friends are uh, Stephen Harper is an old friend of mine. One of the things that you learn from that experience is reporters, journalists are very quick to cultural explanations of differences. Why does group A behave differently from group B? And I don't want to say that's not important, but my view is always you need to look at the institutions first and do the culture later. It's worth remembering that if the United States had used the Canadian political system, it would have been governed through the 1980s, not by President Ronald Reagan, but by Prime Minister Tip O'Neill. Mm-hmm. And ditto, if Canada had a presidential system, the conservatives would have held power for almost all of the period from the Second World War because the liberals ran up such a huge supermajority in the French-speaking province of Quebec, whereas the conservatives were the majority party in most of that period everywhere else. So institutions matter. A lot of the differences between Canadian and American life are attributed not to the huge cultural differences. I mean, there are cultural differences, but they Canadians especially make way too much of them. That Canada has a rate of gun ownership, for example, second only to the United States on planet Earth compared to any other country. Canadians own a lot of guns only compared to Americans do they own comparatively few. But they don't have a gun, gun culture in the way the United States has and they don't have gun laws mm-hmm. like the United States. So I love this point here and I, I recognize it's getting a little bit off the, off the stream from your biography. But there's a great piece and I do not remember the names of the authors. But after the 1994 failure of the Clinton health care law. Mm-hmm. Two political scientists wrote a great piece that's always influenced me a lot called It's the Institution Stupid. And the point is there were a million efforts to explain what went wrong in 1994. It was Hillary Clinton's big process and 500 people getting into it and it was too complicated and it was Republicans and it was you know the insurance industry and all the, all the players and actors and dynamics and forces you always hear about. But their point was very simple, that in a parliamentary system, 
where the president had the backing of a majority, a governing majority of Congress, the president would have been able or the prime minister would have been able to execute their agenda, much as has happened in other systems. And so one of the ways in which America has become differently path dependent than a country like the UK or, or Canada is because the institutions we have, which are more veto prone, mm -hmm. have not allowed for the creation of quite as much of a state. Right. And so when there are these, uh, I think, often a little bit smug arguments that, well, in, in the UK, the conservatives believe in national health care. Well, in America, they might, too, if national health care had been established in 1942. Right. I think there's a lot of that and, and particular historical experiences. One of the differences between Britain and the United States was that the, the experiences of massive participation in two world wars required the mobilization of social consent on a scale that no American government has ever had to do. And so in a very class-divided country, as Britain was before the First World War, the, the process of mobilizing the social consent, not just once, but twice, required institutions to uphold national unity. And that's why the conservatives ended up being in favor of things like the NHS and other kinds of programs, many of which have been dismantled along the way, by the way, as we've moved farther away from those experiences. But I wrote a history of the 1970s, and the big theme of that book is that the way to understand American history is it really falls into three chapters. And the first chapter is from the beginnings until 1917. The second chapter is the imperatives of the mid-century era of wars, World War II, mm -hmm. World War I, the Cold War, the mobilization and the Depression too, the mobilization that was needed. Almost all of Franklin Roosevelt's emergency economic legislation was based upon leftover World War I statutes. Statutes that were not abolished until 1974. Hmm. Gerald Ford ended the First World War legally. <laughs> really? Is that right? All the Trading with the Enemy Act that was used to justify huh. Roosevelt's um, banning of private gold ownership, for example. They were on the books from 1917 until 1974, and then they came off. And then the third chapter is the period after 1974, when we really move away from that mid-century period of mobilization, become a more individualist society. And unsurprisingly, a more unequal society. One of the things I often try to impress upon liberals is liberals are for diversity and against inequality. Mm -hmm. But inequality is a form of diversity. If you have more differences between people, there are going to be also more economic differences between people. If you want fewer economic differences between people, you're going to need more similar people. I want to return to that, but but that brought us very smoothly to nearly 1980 yeah. when you have come to America for college. So you come to America and you're transfixed by Ronald Reagan. Why? Yeah. My family background were um, Cold War liberals. They were pre-Holocaust Jewish immigrants to Canada. Uh, my mother's family had come before the First World War. My father's just before the Second. But as with Jews everywhere, the, the facts of the 20th century are just are an impress on your mind. And the thing that as Cold War liberals in a country allied to the United States, we always understood, was that the world order did not happen. By itself, it rested upon a foundation of American power and American action. When it comes to world politics, I'm a Keynesian. I don't believe it's a self-balancing system. I think it needs an active regulator to make the system work, and that has to be the United States. Through the late 1970s, we're a catastrophic period for American power, from the failure in Vietnam uh, to the hostage crisis. And I was a teenager and more impressionable, and so it seemed even scarier to me than it probably would have seemed to somebody older. And Ronald Reagan seemed to be the person with the promise to restore that world order that my parents – and one of the things I remember arguing a lot with my, my late mother who's 
I would put up with a lot. Uh, she used to, she had an expression that um, as I got older and became a father myself, she would sort of fix me with a stern look and say, well, David, children are a trial. <laughs> <laughs> she never said that to my sister. <laughs> um, so I don't know how she put up with it. But I remember that Reagan was Eisenhower, that thing that they had valued in Eisenhower. That promise of stability and security, not just for the United States, but for the planet, the democratic part of the planet. That's what Reagan offered. And that was the thing that was most important to me about him. Talk me through this a little bit, because uh, speaking as somebody who is not around for the 1980 election. Or many elections after. No, I was around pretty shortly thereafter. I just wasn't paying very close attention. (laughs) (laughs) But Reagan exists in this moment in American politics as a cudgel. Often a cudgel wielded by Democrats against Republicans. Uh, Barack Obama enjoys quoting old Ronald Reagan speeches at at, at Republicans. Give me a bit of a sense of why Reagan seemed that way to you. What made Reagan seem capable of executing a restoration of American greatness? One thing that had a particular impact on me, and this is kind of a specialized taste, I wrote my senior thesis at Yale under the supervision of Eugene Rostow, who was taught at, the, taught at the law school. And so one of the things that made an enormous impression on me was through Eugene Rostow, I met the extraordinary number of surviving members of the Truman-Kennedy era, conservative Democrats, mm-hmm. who all told me, these, these are the people who I most admired in the world. And they told Reagan's the guy. Reagan is the heir of what we believed in. Reagan is carrying out the policy that we supported between 1947 and 1964. So that made an enormous impression on me. What also struck, and this is a broader impression, and this is one of the ways when the, the, the comparison between Reagan and Trump that you sometimes hear is so ridiculous. In 1980, that race was neck and neck. To the end. Um, at the end, the Carter support collapsed and liberals deserted Carter for Anderson. Reagan only won about 50 point something percent of the vote, but it looked like a landslide because of the collapse in Democratic or liberal support for Carter. And Anderson, I should note, third party candidate. Was a former yeah. Republican congressman from mm-hmm. Illinois who started as a very conservative person to become much more liberal than um, Carter was. and became a place where Democrats who found Carter too conservative could put their votes. In the final debate in which I, uh, I don't now don't remember whether Anderson took part in the final. There was only one presidential debate in 1980. It was very close to the election. And I, I remember watching it in a Yale common room. And the argument of the people who opposed Reagan was this man is a maniac. This man is Barry Goldwater. He will start a nuclear war either intentionally or through carelessness or just through his stupidity and his general ignorance of the world. And in that debate, the reason that famous there you go again moment was so powerful was what you saw on your screen for the first time, for millions and millions of people the first time, was a good man, a kind man, a gentleman. Not a gentleman in the one word, but a gentleman mm-hmm. in two words. And what you realized is, you know, I, you may disagree with him, but you could not be – one of his fiercest critics, Sam Donaldson, he said that Reagan was capable of – through his policies, which Donaldson objected to, of you know casting somebody into poverty. But if he actually met the person he'd cast into poverty, he would give that person literally the shirt off his back. Okay, I don't think anybody has ever said any of those things about Donald Trump. You do not watch Donald Trump and say, you know, whatever I think of what he would do, I can see a good human being. You look at Donald Trump, you say, that's like the worst human being ever to appear on a presidential stage. I mean, he's terrible. Um, even his supporters agree, yeah, he's a terrible guy, but he might do some good things. And that was, the, that was the, the power and impact. And one of the reasons that Reagan was so transformative was he – Barry Goldwater – I did not remember the Barry Goldwater 
days, but I've seen, you know when you watch the old tapes and you read about him, he seemed a kind of careless and indifferent person. Not again, not a bad person, but just mm-hmm. missing parts of human awareness, missing an understanding of other of other people. Reagan really he was an empathic, intuitive person. Great politicians, I've always believed, are more like artists than they are like intellectuals. They see things that other people don't see, and they communicate in ways that are beyond words. You've watched this happen, and you've finished your thesis at Yale. Yeah. How do you begin to involve yourself professionally in politics? What is your first professional role in politics? You mean professional getting paid for it? I haven't had very many of those. I distributed literature for Ronald Reagan in Mm -hmm. 1980, knocked on doors in New Haven, Connecticut, which was then still a heavily Italian American city. The Republicans carried a congressional seat in 1980. They lost it in 1982 after the Reagan budgets removed the um, subsidies for uh, home fuel heating oil. That was a very important issue in New Haven. Uh, But yeah, we uh, won the congressional seat. Very exciting. Uh, So I knocked on doors and distributed literature and those kinds of things, worked as a volunteer. And then I I sort of hung around. I started going to uh, conventions in 1984. I had a lot of friends who were in politics, a lot of friends who were in the Reagan White House. I remember visiting Dinesh D'Souza in his very grand White House office. Gary Bauer had an even grander one. I'd, I was involved in Canadian politics at the same time. Um, but most of the time, I, I've not been a pro- political professional. Because I've been a journalist and I've written about it, it's obviously inappropriate and conflicting So to be involved in politics in that way. So my rule is I, over my career, I have had many friends in politics. I've given them advice. I've written speeches for them. I never take – it's not professional. I never accept uh, money. Is that true when you were a speechwriter in the – No, the then I was working for the government. Right. Got it. OK. I'll take – I'm a government employee. You right. don't have any choice. I mean, yes. Government employees should be take, take pay because otherwise who's paying them? But when – in my political work, I've always been a volunteer. But so as a journalist I, – I should have probably framed this more broadly. As a journalist, as I remember, that you wrote a book around the time of the 1994 Republican That's Revolution right. that, right. Was, that was deeply influential at that moment in, in American politics. And I'm – I guess I'm curious how you began commentating – on the national course of the conservative movement in America? Because I think of that as having been yeah. the topic of your work for, right. for quite some time now. Well, I, I started writing for National Review when I came out of college in 1982. I, Bill Buckley was a generous mentor to me, published a lot in conservative magazines. I mean, th- that was a time of, of con- I mean, it was a time when you wrote your article on a typewriter or printed it out or sent it on a floppy disk via FedEx to a magazine mm-hmm. <laughs> or a newspaper. So I wrote a lot as a freelancer. I went to law school in the later 1980s. And Good decision or bad decision? At the time, it seemed a, a, just a terrible decision. Um, I was – in retrospect, it's done. It's, it's, I benefited a lot from it, although my wife finds it's, it's a very annoying thing because it's very hard to get an opinion out of somebody who went to law school. What they, <laughs> they will do is list the, the, the possible answers to a question. And where should we go for dinner? Well, there's, you know, Indian food. <laughs> one, one could also make a strong case for going to that new French bistro. Sure. <laughs> Just where do you want to go? <laughs> so, I, so I did it through journalism. Uh, I, got, I started work on the Wall Street Journal editorial page in the late 1980s. I was there for three years. And that was a very formative experience for me. Like you, I was very interested in, in data. So I was given the job at the journal of – this was a period, the late 80s were a period where the inequality debate, what had happened, was really heating up. And at that time, it was a question of is it happening at all? Mm-hmm. Because there are a lot of reasons to think it wasn't actually. That what you were seeing was people living in smaller households, the entry of women into the workforce, which was happening faster among educated people than among uneducated people, was artificially distorting uh, household income mm-hmm. statistics, that kind of thing. So I was given the job of running the op-ed debate. 
on this, um, finding the articles and posting them. And we, we it, the journal in those days was a different kind of entity from what it is now. They were quite interested in having an open debate. They, they knew what the answer was, to be sure, um, and they didn't need any stinking data to tell them what the answer was. They knew what the answer, but they wanted to have – they had enough confidence in their point of view that if you believed that you had a lively debate presenting all sides, our side would surely win. Mm-hmm. So running that debate, I became aware that our side was losing, actually. <laughs> the other guys were right. It really was happening. And the journal also at that point had a very romantic view of immigration. And I was running that debate and became aware, you know what? The immigration policies really are having a, a huge impact on what is happening to the lower third of American society. So that's that started my mind moving in unexpected and not self-benefiting directions. But I remain very much a true and ardent believer in libertarian-ish economics, not necessarily libertarian-ish culture, but libertarian-ish economics. And uh, that's, that was the path to my, my first book because what happened on the eve of the Republican Revolution in 1994, that I wrote this book that said we have to grapple with why did the Reagan Revolution, which achieved many things, ultimately not solve the problem of the state that conservatives were so consumed with in the late 1970s. And the argument of that first book, which was called Dead Right, was it can't. It can't solve the problem of the state. That is not – the polity won't allow you to do what you want to do. And the expedience you're driven to as a way of working a way around that fact of public non-consent, I don't think democracy is about finding out what the people want because there are too many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's meaningless. But what you can find out is what the people will consent to. Uh, the parties are competing for consent, not for direction, but for consent. The people won't consent to this program, and the experience. And I went through the, then the most of the book was about the. So different- say a word here on what you on the distinction between what they want and consent. So consent is what they will refrain from vetoing. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. One of the things that, that populists say is, "I'm going to go out on the hustings. I'm going to say to the people, do you want this? Do you want that? The people want this.' Uh, that, that, I think it's just an illusion. What happens is politically active groups compete to offer solutions, which they sometimes believe in for objective reasons, and sometimes. I'm, I don't think anybody ever reasoned himself into supporting ethanol. Uh, (laughs) But you have your ideas about what should happen. And then you go and you try to mobilize people to give you permission to do it. But that's all you get. You're not actually executing some will of the masses because you can't aggregate the preferences of tens of millions of people in a meaningful way. What you can do is aggregate their permission. That they give you a mandate, go ahead and try it. If it seems to work, you'll get another four years. If it doesn't seem to work, you don't get the four years. And by the way, no guarantees of fairness here. I mean, you can lose power for all kinds of reasons that are terribly unfair. And you know, and if somebody happens to invent the internet when you're in office, you'll look like a genius, mm-hmm. even though you didn't do anything any different from you know your predecessor who was doing the same thing when they didn't invent the internet. But that was the problem that Republicans had. And so the book Dead Right was about the kinds of expedients you were driven to in conservative politics. And I, I then said these expedients are dangerous. And the special expedient, which I wrote about, is, is an expedient of substituting nationalist populist politics for Goldwater Reagan conservatism. That, that was seemed to me the most likely thing in 1994. That would be the expedient that you try to come up with the um, – that you try to deal with the non-consent. I'm very proud of that book except for the last chapter because because the last chapter of a book always has to be, OK, so what do you do about this problem? <laughs> Last chapter of political books are, are yeah. rough. The truth was, beats the hell out of me. I don't know. I've walked down the lane and it turns out it ends with a 14-foot high brick wall and no ladder and no door. I don't know what to do. But you can't say that. So I came up with a bunch of suggestions mm-hmm. that 
even at the time struck me as uh, unsatisfactory and that struck, came worse. So I, 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 that's why I returned to this theme again and again was because I was unhappy with my last chapter. And so the next substantial book I wrote, which was a history in the 1970s, that was published in 2000, I wanted to talk about how we'd walked into this, why we'd walked into this cul-de-sac. And my argument was that that mid-century state just broke down of its own way. It didn't fit the country. It didn't fit the times. It had a whole bunch of expedients that worked temporarily, but that wouldn't work over the long run. And so it broke down. And when it broke down, the, the new, more individualistic, more atomized, uh, more freewheeling, more culturally and economically open post-1970s America emerged. The problem, not the problem, but the fact of that pro- it was it was going to be a much more diverse, much more unstable, much more unequal society. And people were going to have discomfort with that. So there are two threads I want to try to pick up on here in either order. And one is the thread of the question of nationalism yeah. and nationalist populism. And the other is the Republican Revolution, and in particular, Newt Gingrichism. Yeah. Let's go with Gingrich first, because I think nationalism is going to be a, a longer conversation. But Norm Ornstein and, and Tom Mann, who, who are smart observers of this stuff, and, and a lot of other folks I know, look to Gingrich, who has played an unusual role in this election, too, yeah. as if to come out and, and confirm everybody's suspicions, as someone who was very much ahead of his time in recognizing that the incentives of polarizing parties would create returns to a form of open partisan warfare that would have been considered norm-breaking before him. Mm-hmm. And that it's Gingrich who, you know, really, for instance, popularized the the tendency to attack anybody whose family lived in Washington, D.C., as somebody who had gone establishment and had gone Washington. It's Gingrich who figured out that the way to destroy the Democratic hammerlock on Congress, which had been going on for 40 years, was to withhold cooperation to the degree that the majority collapsed of its own weight and its own inability to actually get things done. That governing cooperatively was actually bad for minority because it made you complicit in your own continuous defeat. And I'm curious at this point how you think about Gingrich and the Republican Revolution in that moment, do you see it as an antecedent to this moment or do you see it as something that had a different kind of potential that that went wrong yeah. or a third? A book I'm contemplating after the season is a, a dual biography of Clinton and Gingrich. Uh, it's unfortunate I'm already working on that. <laughs> you are? No, I'm kidding. So I'm only <laughs> contemplating it. But so I, the problem is I'm, I, I may say too much and take up this whole podcast on this subject. I knew Gingrich somewhat in the 1990s. I, I've, seen, I've seen him only occasionally since then. But my overwhelming impression of him was that he was a man seeking a moment, but he didn't have the patience to wait for the moment. He was always trying to force the moment. I remember I said that politicians are like artists, that a lot of what politics is about is you have a self-belief, you do your thing, and then you wait for history. And sometimes history comes and then you're Winston Churchill. And sometimes history doesn't come, and then you're sending angry letters to the editor for the rest of your life. <laughs> but what happens, sometimes there are politicians like Ingrid who try. So he's always, he was always trying to force the moment. The first time I ever saw Newt Gingrich speak, it would have been in 1983, it was at CPAC, and he gave a speech called Why Liberals Oppose a Strong American Presence in Space. That is an amazing speech title. I just want to know. It's like, it's like the Ur Gingrich. I would subscribe to that newsletter. (laughs) Uh, And okay. So in 1983, the American space program was indeed shrinking because the United States had sent a man to the moon. And then the question was, 
what do we do next? And in the meantime, there had been this incredible information technology revolution which said, you know, you can find more stuff by sending a robot to Jupiter than you can by spending the hundreds of billions of dollars it would take to send a person to Mars and bring them back safely. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about bringing the robot back safely, and that's like 80 percent of the cost. But the key thing in that point was – so the question was, well, what – re- it's David Stockman who opposes a strong American presence in space because it's really expensive and it's not necessary. And Gingrich – one of the great points he made in the speech was the American people want us to do this and the way we know it is because of the success of the Star Wars movies. That's a really weird way to gauge public opinion. But Gingrich was always looking for these pop culture cues that something was happening because people had liked a movie about that thing or preferred a song or went to a TV show about that thing. And that meant – and that was the substitute for the kind of consent that you normally had to get through political organization. I think one of the other things that that happened with with Gingrich in those years was he broke down the institutions not just of Congress but of the Republican Party. And in order to put more hands in the power of the speaker, he took power away from the committee chairs. And this has been something that had been going Mm -hmm. on for a long time. But it became – the 1994 was a logical moment to put – empower the committee chairs again. But the Republican committee chairs tended to be more like normal politicians than Newt Gingrich was. And the chairman of the Ag Committee – did what the farmers wanted and the uh, chairman of the waterways subcommittee did what barge owners wanted. And, and if you wanted to have a more revolutionary approach to politics, you had to disempower, disempower the chairs and try to aggregate the power in the speaker's hands. The effect of that was so long as the speaker looked incredibly successful and dynamic, he could hold a lot of power over everybody. But what quickly happened is when trouble came, the power of the speaker dissipated much faster than the power of the committee chairs. And then it was every – member of Congress for himself or herself, and the whole system broke down. And then they all went out and raised their own money. And once they began doing that, then the ability to discipline members of Congress just vanished. And so what you have now is the House of Representatives, it's like Somalia. I mean, it's it's like gangs of uh, warlords, each with his own little bit of power, but no formal institutions because the warlords are powerful, not according to whether or not they can control a committee. They just, if they've got a good direct mail operation. I remember in the first... Congress, after the Republicans won their majority back in 2010, Michelle Bachman's PAC raised more money than the PAC of John Boehner, Speaker mm-hmm. of the House. And that made her a very, very powerful person, even though who was she really? Well, there are three, I, th- I think, three fascinating things here. One, to the point about Michelle Bachman, I think there is this fantasy that if you get big money out of politics, you would depolarize it. There is this belief that what is leading politics to, to the place it is, is Chamber of Commerce, is unions, it's these big donors, even like yeah. Sheldon Adelson. And I think one of the things you notice if you really look at small donor donations is that they go very heavily to very extreme candidates. Yeah. Michelle Bachman is a huge small donor beneficiary. Alan West was a very big small donor beneficiary on the Democratic side. Alan Grayson was a huge small yeah. donor beneficiary. And so one thing to your point about direct mail organizations and I think continuing on as something that we should be looking at here, particularly as a lot of the views of how to fix money are to empower small donors – that might be a good thing to do, but you're not going to get more moderation out of it. I so don't – my, my, my views on party are pretty cranky. But given that if there's a Clinton presidency, this is probably going to be a big issue. For 50 years, progressive and liberal reformers have been trying to drink themselves sober on campaign finance. That, that is that they do the same thing, variants, the same thing over and over again, and it never works. And they, they say, therefore, we need to do more of that same thing. The way they try to fix campaign finance is by limiting donations and by insisting on transparency. 
and then things get worse. Well, let's have more limits on donations, and then let's have more transparency even than that, and then things get worse again. Well, one more round. This is going to be the decisive round. We're doing it all wrong. That because they've got the core evil. The core evil is not money in politics. There's money in politics in every democracy in one way or another. The core evil of the American system that is truly unique is the legislators raise their own money. That There is direct contact between the sources of money and the people who pass laws. That's the evil. What every other democracy does is we're going to put an agency between the legislators and the donors. It's the political party and the political party will raise the money and the political party will spend the money. And this intermediary buffers both. So no donor can ever call a member of you know, the Bundestag on the phone and say, you owe everything to me. It's not true. You know, I owe me over everything to the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats and they can drop me from the list and punish me in all kinds of ways. But I don't owe anything to you. I mean, call the party chairman. I mean, they, they'll take your call. Believe me, they, you owe, they owe a lot to you. And the goal of campaign finance should be to rebuild that buffer. And that is especially important post-Citizens United. What Citizens United did was it built an alternative political party that's massively ineffective and inefficient, wasteful, and even corrupt. I don't think you have to abolish the super PAC because after the experience of this past election, it's going to be very hard for them to raise money. What a super PAC is, imagine if you had a corporation that said, okay, shareholders are forbidden ever to talk to management. There are no laws against management self-dealing. In fact, management can, make, can pay itself any amount of money and make any contracts it wants, and shareholders are forbidden to talk to them about it. And by the way, and the SEC is permanently paralyzed, and there's no such thing as corporate law either. Well, what would happen? The corporate, the management would steal everything that isn't nailed down, and that's what or wasted. And that's what happened mm-hmm. in 2016. That's what happened at the Rubio PAC, Super PACs, and the Bush Super. Every they took the chairs, they took the sinks, they took the copper plumbing, and it was. A gigantic waste of money. And the donors all know that. So if somebody came along and said, the party is back in business and the party can receive your checks and in a transparent way and regular, not in transparent, in a way that has meaningful legal sanction and where you can see what's happening, where everyone is working for a career, not for a a once-in-a-lifetime payday, the donors would flock to the party. But it's not legal for the party to do the things that the super PACs are now able to do. So Make it legal. So Legalize I'm sympath- parties. I'm sympathetic to this, but let me let me paint a little bit of picture here for people not as into campaign finance reform. So right now you have sharp limits on how much you can donate, not just to a candidate, but to a party. I cannot just give the political party a million dollars. Even I more could, important, important, there are sharp limits on how much the party can give to its candidate. Right. What I could do is give a million dollars to a super PAC. And so if you have a lot of money you want to spend on American politics, it has become very difficult to do that within the traditional party candidate structure, very easy to do it in the super PAC structure. Now, you're right. I think that both in 2012, too, it's worth noting, and that did not seem to staunch the super PACs. In 2012, Karl Rove raised $400 million, something in that neighborhood, didn't win a single race. I feel like the good news about super PACs is it turns out to be very difficult to buy elections. And it turns out to be, I think, just less effective to spend money on elections in general. I think well, it turns out to be not just di- Trump and Bush, but Trump and Clinton are showing that to some degree. Very difficult to buy elections when the people selling the elections are mostly interested in paying themselves. I think that's probably right. But I also think that we have a tendency to vastly overrate how much utility we are buying at the very least at the presidential level with money. Yeah. At the presidential level, people's preferences are highly sorted by partisanship and by an overwhelming environment of information. 
And in that world, a couple ads, or much more to the point, a couple more ads, people, I think, always imagine this will change somebody's mind, but they can't ever really imagine who, mm-hmm. right? Introspectively, never changes any of our minds. Yeah. And so it isn't, I think, as shocking as, as it can sometimes feel to people. And yet, because everybody needs to be doing something and doing something to try to feel they have control over this thing called the American electorate, they're always raising money. I do want to note, though, that to your point about how to restructure campaign finance, I'm pretty sympathetic to the idea that you should be able to give a lot more to parties. But I, I do think, by the same token, the idea that individual donors should have more sway, which is not by limiting money, but by actually magnifying the donations they make. There are these ideas to say, take any donation under 250 and give it 5x to give small donors more power. I think that stuff is interesting. And I do think it's worth discussing. But I also think that it's going to potentially help solve the problem of folks feeling like they don't have a voice, but it will give a very polarized part of yeah. the country, a and voice. Michelle Bachman would have been a huge winner from that. Right. Then she'd have had not just a little bit more money than John Boehner, but five times as much money. So let me go back then to, to some other pieces of Gingrich. I think something that is important about what he figured out, and, and he was correct about it, I think this is one of the tough things in, in discussing this sometimes, just as Mitch McConnell is correct about it, is that there was a recognition late in the 20th century that the best way to regain power as a minority was to use the veto points of the American political system to make the majority fail in its ability to govern. And that is, I think, short-term rational. It's short-term rational for both parties. But it creates long-term, deep, bubbling frustrations among a population that is getting the signal continuously that nothing is getting done, no problems are getting solved, the solutions that are getting through are not good ones because they don't achieve any kind of consensus. And nobody can agree on anything. Yeah. And the Republican Party has, in some ways that paid off for them, pushed this strategy harder. And I think in some if ways is, now- wait, that, In what sense worse. is- I mean, the Republican Party has won a lot of elections. That is the, the way. At the, congre- <laughs> no, no, at the congressional level, it's lost more at the presidential level, and it's entirely lost the initiative in national life. And if you compare- the, the Republican record from 1968 to 1992 of governance to the Republican record from 1992 forward. It doesn't look so good. And Make that argument for a second. Okay. When Richard Nixon comes to power, the United States is still very much a post-war economy. It's illegal to own a gold bar. If you want to ship a crate of lettuce from one end of the country to the other, you have to file a route map with a federal agency. Airfares are regulated. There's one telephone monopoly. The draft is still in place. It's a country polarized between labor and management unions. It's a country where the states are weak and Washington is strong. Cities are also hopelessly dependent on other on, on the states for their finance. Over the next generation from 68 to 92, Republicans succeed. Democrats with democratic cooperation, by the way. I mean, airline deregulation was led by Senator Ted Kennedy and Stephen Breyer, who was his chief of staff at the time, now a justice on the Supreme Court. But it's a much freer economy in just about every way, more open to international trade, deregulated, transportation 
energy, all of these industries are deregulated. The power of labor unions is greatly reduced. The draft is ended. The telephone monopoly is broken. And we have a telecommunications revolution. These are extraordinary accomplishments that change the face. I mean, America in 1992 is a radically different society from America in 1968. America in 2016 is not a very different society from 1992. We've got the internet. Thank you. That's good. Um, <laughs> is uh, it? But it's, uh, <laughs> it's not really different. I mean, you, you had a choice of long distance carriers in 1992. I mean, there's a lot of technologies that, but the way the system works is not basically very different. And Republicans have the reduction in the size of the state that happened between – in the power of the state that happened between 68 and 92 has not happened since 92 onward, even though Republicans controlled Congress, which is, I guess, day, year in, year out, the more powerful uh, branch. They controlled it for most of that, that period because the ideas have outrun the ability to gain permission to implement them. And more and more, it's a party that talks to itself. Um, this is the affliction of talk news and uh, – talk, talk radio and Fox News that – I think one of the things that I've been saying this for a long time, and I think this this year a number of people have joined. I mean, one of the things that has been sort of nice for me about this year is that a lot of things I've been saying for a decade and made myself pretty stinky for saying. I think are now I'm, I now hear a lot of people agreeing. But it isn't that liberal media bias didn't exist. It's that being a political party with the media against you is like training for a competition in a weight vest, and. Being a political party tr with a Fox News supposedly helping you is like training for competition in zero gravity. It just – it gets too easy within your little space. And then you go out into real – into the big world where people do not listen to Fox and talk and all the things you've learned to say, people – that sound you sound like a lunatic. Worse than that, you sound like a cranky old lunatic. Um, and you know, I, I've had the experience of you know, watching my children who are politically conservative when they would visit you know, older relatives who are watching Fox. They would walk into the room when an older relative was watching Fox. They would stay for three or four seconds and exit the room because they couldn't bear it. They couldn't bear the sound of it. They couldn't bear the look of it. It just felt ancient. You know, it felt like the way, you know, you open your grandmother's closet and there's that overpowering mothball smell and you just have to close the door and get out. <laughs> That's how people who are not Fox viewers react to this thing. And... We used to have a mass market product and we've now got a niche product. And it, the niche product, although it makes a lot – it's more profitable than the mass market product, it has a much smaller market share. One of the fascinating things about – I'm, I'm very interested in that recitation because one way I would gloss those periods is that between 68 and 92, you had a Republican Party that in many ways has had absorbed the primary ideas of the Democratic Party. And had been true for a bit before that, too. And Reagan, uh, I think, is the, the pull from this a little bit. But but even there, you had a Republican Party that had begun to make peace with things like Medicare that were using more big government means. Obviously, um, this is beyond the point of Nixon, but Nixon was was quite big government himself or, or had part of the point of Nixon. And after 1992, you have a Democratic Party that I think has absorbed a lot of the better ideas of the conservative movement. Um, you and I have talked before. Whether or not this ended up being a good idea, Obamacare was based on a lot of Republican ideas. Bill Clinton talks about the era of big government being over, does a lot of trying to streamline and in some places like capital gains, cut the tax code. And the Republican Party in a way that I don't think actually was strategic but could have been in some way strategic is able to pull the center, particularly I think of the economic conversation yeah. into a place where Democrats just aren't trying a lot of the the plays that they ran in the mid 20th century well, in a way that I think conservatives should see as a success, 
but to no. some degree, because of the Fox News dimension, because of the having to oppose everything in order to win back power from the minority strategy, they have to continuously convince themselves are a failure. Let me concur with that with the most important example of them all. And that is in 1968, the United States faces the Soviet Union and the threat of nuclear annihilation. annihilation mm-hmm. And in 1992, it does not. Central Europe is liberated, the Soviet Union collapses, and there's a, the biggest build down of nuclear arms on both sides. Not the biggest, because it's never happened before or since, but there's this giant build down. And one of the reasons the Republicans held power was they did. They took the central, the best democratic idea of them all, which is NATO and the transatlantic community providing Europe with a security guarantee and building a structure of world peace based on that. That was a democratic idea that we took. I mean, when Donald Trump says, well, our allies don't pay very much for defense, he's forgotten. Um, Not having big French and German armies is not a bug in the present system. It's a feature. That was the whole idea. France, Germany, do not, we'll do it. We'll protect you both equally. And now you guys sell things to each other for a living and don't worry because mm-hmm. neither of you will ever be allowed to invade the other ever. We don't put it that way. <laughs> Both of you will be protected from potential dangers. Neither of you will ever be allowed to invade each other again. Um, and so what happened, then this Cold War ends. And now we have to put together a new architecture and we fail. We utterly fail. We don't even understand the problem anymore. Well, we just take the old architecture and make it bigger. And that in so many ways has been a serious failure. The price of that failure is now, we now see it all around us, but we ran out of those ideas. One, one more thing, I know I'm talking too long, but one more thing about why conservatives don't get it. There are two peculiarities of, there are two tropes of the conservative mind that I think do, these two things do more damage than anything else. And they are just, they're omnipresent. One of them is the myth of the, of the turning point, the tipping point. Um, and the other is the belief in inevitability. Bill Buckley standing athwart history, yelling stop, and Paul Ryan and Ronald Reagan saying, you know, we either make the right choice today or we condemn ourselves to a thousand. And so conservatives, this election. Or Donald Trump saying, this is your last chance this is, to this, achieve every dream you have ever dreamed. Right. We, and this it won't the, come around exactly. again. Exactly. We stand at Armageddon and we battle for the Lord. If we lose today, Spartans. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is just wrong. It's wrong. Politics never stops. It never stops. You lose a battle. The politics doesn't stop. You win. The politics doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ne- it's never over. It, it's, there's always more politics to do. There are no tipping points. Yeah, there are inflection points where things are different, but they're never permanent. I mean, you look at them from a point of view of 20 years later, mm-hmm. uh, and, and they turn out not to be so permanent. I mean, one of the things that was an argument during Obamacare, the Obamacare, was if we get a larger role, in government role in healthcare, that that's it. The Republicans will never win an election again. Well, tell that to the British conservatives, the most winning party in the democratic world. Tell that to the Canadian conservatives who held, held power for a decade just just ended. Tell it to the Australian liberals, really conservatives, uh, who have been, again, the dominant power in Australia. In fact, most countries, held to the German social Christian Democrats, most countries with a bigger government role in healthcare turned out to have, a, have stronger conservative parties in the United States. And that's not a coincidence. It's actually a reason because the politics doesn't stop. Once you have the basic guarantee. That opens the door to a new fight. Okay, how much will I, as a more economically successful citizen, be allowed to provide for myself above the system? And that turns out to be a really winning argument for conservatives. Once you say everyone's got something, but those who have more can buy more, it turns out you can get a lot of consent for that idea. Um, And and that's the central argument in in Britain. Um, And labor's always trying to close down 
the opportunities for the more economically successful members of society to buy a better level of health care. And labor is always losing that fight. So one of the things that I want to touch on here is so you worked in the George W. Bush administration. There are ways in which Trump has continuity and discontinuity with Gingrich. But he ran in a, in a way that was fascinating to me as a rejection of the Bush dynasty, right? Yeah. His, his primary target. It, it often seemed that the reason he was really in this was to humiliate Jeb Bush and to make an argument against George W. Bush. And I'd like to hear your view of why there was ground for that. Yeah. I had not expected that that would have been a winning argument in a Republican primary, particularly given that Bush had gotten significantly more popular after leaving office. Well, I compared those early uh, Republican debates to a Thanksgiving where the family makes the bad decision to open the third bottle of wine and then everybody starts telling everybody else what they really think of each other. <laughs> it just I have sp- not come to your Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> it just was the return of the repressed. What had happened – and this is why – one of the things I feel a little guilty about in this cycle was I was – Never a Trump supporter, but in the early phases, I was what Ross Douthat calls Trump curious. <laughs> I, 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 said, I thought there were a lot of things we needed to talk about as a party that we had not allowed ourselves to talk about and Donald Trump was forcing us to talk about. Mm-hmm. My assumption was – and of course, you know, he'll do that for a couple of months and then he will collapse of his own absurdity right. and then we'll nominate you know, a normal person. Anyway, it turns out he should not have even gotten five minutes worth of permission and that was – I feel guilty. I didn't stand up earlier on, on that. So I'm trying to make up for that now. But <laughs> – Republican Party went through a lot of traumas. A lot of Republicans suffered for closure in 2008. A lot of Republicans lost their jobs in 2009. A lot of Republicans had to confront the fact that the Iraq war was not a success and that the weapons of mass destruction were not there. A lot of Republicans lost loved ones in those battles. And a lot of Republicans failed to see their wages rise between 1998 and 2016. Those things were all present, but they could not be discussed. We never had the after-action report on what went right and what went wrong during the George W. Bush administration. All we could say is he kept us safe. And even that wasn't true. So those things were all waiting. They were waiting for somebody to talk about them. Donald Trump then talked about them in the most toxic, destructive, and unhelpful way. The debate over immigration, that was a debate waiting to be had and and I think very necessary to have. Again, he opened it. uh, What happened was – the relief, somebody, that, how many people said what I like about Donald Trump is he tells it like it is, which is a strange thing to say about the biggest liar ever to run for president. But what they mean is he introduces topics yeah, and he's not frightened away from talking about them by disapproval from polite society. Mm-hmm. Now, what he says is not true and not helpful and not productive and you know often cruel and vicious. But the door – he opened a door that had been locked. Well, one thing I think Trump is very interesting as an example of and something that he understood intuitively very well is that political parties work in part by suppression. They work in part by emphasizing points of commonality like in the Republican Party, low taxes and suppressing points of discord like immigration or the Iraq war for that matter. And one of the things that he was really able to do was find the places where there had been energy that had been suppressed and unleash it yes, and was the only well person willing to well absorb the – unleashing it is not an easy thing to do and you need a certain kind of personality willing to absorb the backlash Let of me it. scorch your eyebrow, eyelashes uh-huh. and then uh, – And he always was. He was totally unfazed. You have this great piece about the seven guardrails broken by uh, – the, the guardrails of democracy broken by Trump. I think it was seven. Yeah. yeah. 
And I have been trying to think about a piece that's a little bit related to that about how did, assuming he does lose, how did we get so close? Or what are the things that failed? And, and I keep coming back to one thing that failed, which was a personal sense of shame. One of the things that I feel I have taken from Trump is actually how important it is that our politicians have shame and a fear of disapproval. Because right. a lot of what he did was really enabled by this ability to just not give a shit yeah. if everybody was calling him a liar, a bigot, and a fraud. Yes. Well, one of the things that people have said about Hillary Clinton is Hillary Clinton tells lies, but she never forgets that the truth is there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and her lies are always – her preferred option is – and Bill Clinton is like this too – is to evade the truth, bend the truth, yeah. play off the truth, say something that is literally true but actively misleading because yep. the truth is always there. This is why fact-checking politicians, not just them, it's usually – if you ever read a political fact article, they're long because right. politicians are good at yeah. not telling the truth. But Donald Trump, you just discovered, you know what? You could just say, what dead body? <laughs> <laughs> and that would work too. The dead body that's bleeding at your feet. What are you talking about? I don't that dead body. He's only pretending to be dead. He's right. alive. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a powerful <laughs> part of him. Yeah, but okay. So this breaks open and it opens up. Yeah. Why does that work though? Well, it's not clear that it has worked. Um, no, but it did, in in the Republican primary, something I want to push on, not not to you because I don't think you said it, but I think there is this view that Donald Trump's rise in the Republican Party. Was it just some kind of mathematical quirk of a 17-candidate field? Yes. But by the end, he's running against five and then three. And it's not like what happens when it goes down to Ted Cruz and John Kasich yeah. is that all the primaries go to Ted Cruz. Just Donald Trump keeps winning primaries. Right. Something about what he did – and it goes back to the theme that we were going to pick up on earlier. My interpretation of Trump is that he has shown that the emotional core of the Republican base, at least right now – is white nationalism, or is at the very least a kind of traditionalist nationalism and not conservatism as it's more intellectually understood? But I, I'm curious what your read of that yeah, is. No, he, he touched something uh, something real. Look, there's partly – I think the math, the math point is not entirely wrong, but it, ha it needs to be refined a little bit. What happened in the old days of conventions was you would have a candidate who was you know, unacceptable who had the support of a significant part of the party. And you'd be in a convention and then the other parts of the party would com combine to exclude that person from the nomination. You know, that's, that's the, the famous Democratic convention of 1924 when there were 100-plus ballots. The Democrats battle as to whether— Who does not know about the famous Democratic convention of 1924? Well, we, you know, <laughs> it's newly relevant. So um, it's called the Great Klan Bake mm -hmm. because the, the question was— should the, the Ku Klux Klan be welcomed as an integral part of the Democratic mm -hmm. Party coalition and one of the serious candidates had strong Klan ties or should they be rejected because the Klan of the 1920s was more anti – even more anti-Catholic than it was anti-black. It was strong in the north, places like Long Island, which it's unimaginable, but the places where there was – where Catholics were rising to real power and influence in American politics. Um, and they battled and battled and battled and they finally you know, came up with you know, a boring compromise who then proceeded to be crushed by Calvin Coolidge rather than do it either way. You know, we're not going to let the Irish win. We're not going to let the Klan win. We're going to go up the middle, be neither. And, the, and if that means losing to Calvin Coolidge, so be it. We lose, lose to Calvin Coolidge, but at least we haven't committed ourselves in a permanently destructive way. That can happen if people cooperate. You know, there was a moment when in a different political system, the Reince Priebus – head of the RNC, would have called Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, and John Kasich into a room and said, I'm locking the door. 
we are staying here until we have until we have an agreement that two of you are the ticket. And I don't care who's on the top. I don't care who's in second place. And all three of you are going to come out as a united team. You're going to work for this ticket. You're going to mobilize your donors. And, and if you don't do it, I'm leaving and I'm blowing up the RNC. We're not doing anything for you. And we're going to throw away the election rather than allow you to indulge your petty recriminations. But that didn't happen. And there, now there are institutional reasons why it didn't happen, but there are also personal and leadership reasons. It just didn't happen. No one made those deals, which is what normal political parties do. And so there's a question of why, because it it is two thirds of the Republican Party that disapproved of Donald Trump, almost all the way to the very end. And what is happening now is submission, not approval. So. I am still not persuaded that's a math point about the no, – it's, uh, it's an institutionalism point. I guess the other way to put it is that at a certain point, the math goes to that place. At a certain point, what you have left is a conservative in Ted Cruz, is a moderate who's refusing to drop out but is not that relevant to the race in John Kasich and Donald Trump. And despite the fact that you have two-thirds disapproval for, for Donald Trump, you do not see primaries just begin to fall to one of those other two candidates. And the, the reason I press on this a little bit is that I think that it is a more comforting analysis that a lot of Republicans have have indulged in that really this was a fluke of having just too many candidates, too little collective action, too little coordination. Yeah. When I – what I would predict from that hypothesis would have looked very different at the it, end. Okay. We, we can't know the answer to this. Could a Cruz-Kasich ticket with Marco Rubio passionately in support of it and Jeb Bush mobilizing all of his donors and every evangelical leader in the country saying you must support this to their followers, could that have beaten Donald Trump? We don't know. I tend to think the answer is yes, it could have and that contingent factors of you know the selfishness and irresponsibility of people and you might ask why is that so but that was so. And you might say it's also the breakdown of the party mechanism where people no longer have, you know, say, you know what, um, I'm going to fight 12 elections in my life. I don't think I'm going to win them all. But my career depends on winning more of them than mm -hmm. I lose and, and you know, and, and not contaminating the brand so that we end up losing more of them than we win. We don't think that way about politics anymore. For everybody, this – it is true for most people who participate in an election at a senior level that this is indeed the most important election of their particular lives because this is the one that determines whether they get rich or not or get right. a White House job and it will never happen again. We don't have ongoing parties. But let's take on the white nationalism point because I don't know that we have to agree whether it's the most important thing to agree right. that it's a an important thing. Here's a, a debate that your colleague – Matt Iglesias is waging and um, where I think that we need a more refined answer. There's this cartoon version of the debate that says like this. The reason that the phrase of a Trump supporter he's, is that he's a successful man in an unsuccessful place, that the reason these sort of the head of the fire department in a troubled town in West Virginia is a Trump supporter um, is he's driven by economic anxiety. And Matt in his Twitter feed makes endless fun of this mm -hmm. and says, no, he's a racist. Let me try it up the middle and to say – American society, like other democratic societies, has experienced massive demographic transformation and replacement at a, at a time of slow economic growth. A lot of people who are not winners in this system, who, are, who feel they're being replaced and who not, are not experiencing the benefits, wow, I've got a new global market to sell my unique talents to. I'm actually richer. I'm getting on a plane to Bangkok um, and you know, enjoying my wonderful vacation there at less you – know, better vacation at less money. Those people, they don't like being replaced. And 
the Iglesias argument is that is an inherently illegitimate way for people to think. You know, the fact that you, your group's position is being degraded is you have no right to object to that. So, so long as you personally are not shown to be individually worse off, then you have no right to complain that your group as a whole is being – and that is just not human nature. I mean we are tribal primates and you know, we care about the fate of our group and also what our group is changes according to the circumstances. A lot of people you – know, this whole idea that there is such a thing as white people. They're never, in the northern United States, there never used to be white people. There were Irish people and Italian people and Catholics and Protestants. They all hated each other. Mm-hmm. And then you get a, a big influx of new kinds of migrants and they discover, oh, that the Irish people I thought I hated, no, we're all whites together. <laughs> and, but that's because we, we've changed the terms of the group and these groups then – engage in group competition, and it is not surprising that there are these resentments. So my, my answer to that is not to say, and therefore white nationalism is good. It's bad, obviously, and it, you know, we've got a lot of terrible historical precedents. But as it, that wise statesmanship says, if your growth is slowing, go easy on the demographic change. So let me draw up Mount's argument a little bit here, because I actually think you and him are not that far apart, but the way in which you do differ, the way, and this is a place I think I agree with Matt, is pretty important. So he's made the argument a lot of times that there are zero-sum and particularly zero-sum status dimensions to this change. That if you are listening to – you're turning on the Oscars and hearing Chris Rock lecture you about institutional racism and you're turning on the news and you're seeing the first African-American president and that you're beginning to see something where there are only so many of these positions and you are seeing yourself pulled out of them a little bit. The place where I think Matt is skeptical, and I think the evidence backs him up on this, and it's a it's a place where I do think there's an important question here, is there is this desire to make economic growth and slow economic growth the crucial catalytic ingredient. And I think that a broader view of view of how this has worked in Europe, where we've seen many very similar parties that have grown at times of perfectly good economic growth a view of where this appears to be concentrated in America and who it appears was voting for Donald Trump, um, which was not the people even in the Republican primary who had suffered the most economically in recent years. Uh, I take your point about a successful man in an unsuccessful town, but I think we're starting to have to reach now when we're trying to explain why it's the successful man and not the unsuccessful man in the town. And I think that the, the reason it's important is that what it implies is that this will not be as easy to fix as, well, if we only implemented my preferred economic agenda. I think the thing that a lot of folks who enjoy talking about policy and have very strong policy opinions want to do is sanitize this, is transmuted to something they're very comfortable arguing about. And so we've created a way to do that by saying, even if you look at the evidence, and at this point, it's very hard to say the evidence does not at least put a very high racial resentment and demographic anxiety dimension to this. But even if you look at that, well, we can still fix it through the right combination of tax cuts and Federal Reserve policy and everything I wanted to do five years ago. And I think Matt's view, I think my view is that that is not going to work. It wouldn't hurt. Fast <laughs> well, sure. I'm not arguing it would hurt. Um, so let's. I don't. Think, I don't think it's. It's, it's not a one-dimensional lever. One lever. I agree with that. I do a lot of lecturing in Canada. And one of the things I tell my Canadian audiences is, is Canada has suddenly become really an important place for everybody to study because it is the one advanced society where there is no nationalist populist movement right now. There's one almost everywhere else, and there isn't one in Canada. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that Canada is, I think, the largest relative population recipient of immigration on earth. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just not an issue. And 
Mean, that some, Justin Trudeau is hugging Syrian refugees at the Well, airport. the Syrian refugees are controversial. That, and they are actually an exception. They, That's they interesting. Are, okay, I didn't realize that. What is not controversial is if somebody says immigrants are bad, if you're in uh, – because Canadian immigrants tend to be, to risk an overgeneralization, better educated than natives and worse paid. What is the, the typical immigrant job? He is a dentist in a town that otherwise wouldn't have one. Um, he's not a dentist in downtown Toronto with mm-hmm. a fashionable practice. Those, that's a native-born person with a lot of uh, prominent clients. He's there in Lethbridge, and there would be it's a, you know it's Doctor Muhammad or a two-hour drive to a bigger city, and everyone is happy to see Doctor Muhammad there. The other difference is that they they are widely distributed. So when you walk through the popular malls in Vancouver or uh, Toronto, what you see are you know young Iranian boys flirting in English with Vietnamese girls, and they have to speak English because the Vietnamese girls don't speak Farsi, and they you know and you see these mixed groups everywhere. On um, a note, where I grew up, that was the same. Yeah, you, I mean, it, I grew up in Southern California, okay. and the that town w- I in had a lot of. I, I just yeah. that it's funny to hear that as a um, like a Canadian thing because it sounds so. One one but, reason I sometimes struggle in this conversation is that where I grew up was so immigrant heavy already yes. that it just feels weird to hear people. But that is not the, the American experience yeah. is that immigrants come in at the bottom. They are mm-hmm. worst educated and worst paid. It isn't that they even take away jobs from natives. They actually keep alive a lot of jobs that shouldn't exist. I mean, why is there valet parking? Why are there uh, human beings taking parking lot tickets? Why in American restaurants, unlike any restaurant in Europe, does one person bring you your food and a different person take away the food? Those are jobs that other societies don't have at all. And they're not the worse off for for not having. We have a labor labor wasteful economy because of our immigration policy that creates a caste system that's quite un-American. I mean, you're from California. You know, this idea that that college students – getting their dorm room ready, go to the Home Depot and whistle up a couple of day laborers to help them assemble their Ikea furniture. I find that very upsetting and un-American that that happens. I think this is a weird argument, to be honest. One, I have not seen a lot of that college students going to the local Home Depot to get unauthorized labor to to, to do their Ikea furniture. And I, I was a college student who had to do Ikea furniture. But the point you just made a second ago struck me as very strange, actually. And it, it, it speaks to something that I think is interesting. So there's the argument within the immigration literature about complementary labor and substitution labor, right? And what you're saying there is that what America has developed is much more complementary labor, jobs, as you put it, that shouldn't exist. But another way of putting jobs that you shouldn't exist is jobs that you want but otherwise couldn't exist. I mean, when you just said valet parking, now I don't have a car, so I'm not one of America's large beneficiaries of the valet parking economy. People want valet parking. That's why it's there. And the fact that they can have it is something they like. Yes, but they uh, they externalize the real co- – the, the val- valet parking has cost. The valet let me, let me put pay. it actually a different way because I think this is a, the more important place for it because uh, I think we're using here slightly odd examples. But house cleaning and child care are two forms of labor that are dramatically cheaper in cities with significant immigrant populations in America than, than cities without. And, and these are, are forms of labor that are, when they are cheaper, they are more affordable for middle income to earner families who really need them. And while I agree with you that there are social tensions that emerge from that, there are very real goods. We would not want those to not exist, but the other way that they work is they become much more expensive. And actually, interestingly, I think from a conservative point, particularly childcare in other countries, if it becomes too expensive, people need it enough that it becomes federalized. Yes. The one benefit of federalizing it 
which I'm not in favor of, is, is you make its cost visible. Um, and that the American system is that the benefits are captured by the purchaser of the labor. And the costs are socialized because there are large costs with having large numbers of, of poorly paid, poorly educated workers in your society. And sooner or later, they do – they get sick. Somebody has to take care of them. This goes – but we started by talking about the economic anxiety debate about the Trump voter. And one of the ways I think that, uh, you – this is – and the question was slow. Growth alone won't fix it. And I point to the Canadian examples. Both both mm-hmm. growth and the composition of your immigration uh, makes a difference. One thing I think would make a lot of difference, by the way, is just a more easygoing attitude in American society. I mean everybody blames social media for everything. We're speaking just shortly after Halloween and there was this explosion of internet outrage over Hillary – the actress Hillary Duff's Halloween costume. I don't know if you paid attention to this. I actually think oh, I missed this. Okay. I, I, I have uh, youngest daughter still at home as a teenager. So I'm, I'm – I know you're a huge Hillary Duff fan. You I'm, don't I'm, have I'm, to. Caught, I'm caught off in these things. So Hillary yeah. Duff goes to some Halloween party in Hollywood and she's there with her boyfriend and she's dressed as a sexy pilgrim and he's dressed as an Indian. And they post this photograph on Instagram and 15 million <laughs> – Dis, you know, angry comments later that Hillary Duff has pulled down the picture and has ab- issued an abject apology. And I, I joked at the time on Twitter that um, I think this Halloween costume orgy of recrimination moved more votes to Donald Trump than any of the James Comey antics. <laughs> and that – I mean I don't think that people are more censorious and intolerant of their neighbors than they were you know, a generation ago. But the neighbors certainly hear about it in a way that they didn't hear about it a generation ago. And so one of the things that, that this, this habit of talking that we have, that where the, as not only is the group competition intensifying, but it's also more intimate and accusatory and immediate because of the nature of social media and that that creates, I think, a lot of, a lot of intergroup friction. And okay. if you're going to manage – politicians so often say diversity is our greatest strength and mm-hmm. I have to observe. If it were true, they wouldn't have to say it so often. Uh, no one ever says America's greatest strength is possessing half of the world's fertile farmland. <laughs> That's so, just obvious. So I think this actually – I think this is a very interesting point and, and I, I want to consider it because I, I don't think I buy it but I think it goes back to something important. I think that to, to go back to, to the argument between you and Matt, who's not imaginary sitting here, Matt. imaginary Matt. Imaginary um, Matt is a lot easier to out-argue than actual Matt. Yeah, I no, I, and I'm and 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 knowing how much worse I'm at arguing than Matt, I'm I'm worried about taking his position here. So I'll, I'll take I'll take it for me. But you so see, you were saying there's this question about what is a viable position to hold in this debate, right? Is it okay to feel this way? If you're the fireman, the, the successful man in the unsuccessful town, does Matt, do I think it is okay to feel the way you do? And I, I think the view here that, that I hold is it actually is okay to feel that way, that, that, we, that we as a society are going to have to absorb the fact that people do feel that way. But that taking that feeling seriously means taking seriously what the person wants. And that, that is something I think we're having trouble doing. And, and, and so here's the winding answer to your Hillary Duff thing. I think the point that a lot of people have made about political correctness and particularly a kind of online social media driven political correctness, a political correctness that is about arguments about safe spaces and cultural appropriation and Indian costumes and all of that. I think that is someone that has a lot of people who are online pissed off. and. A little bit like the argument that the guy who runs the fire station who doesn't want so many immigrants coming into this country would maybe stop feeling that way if we gave him better tax cuts, which are the thing I already want. 
this also has a now more than ever, the things that I wanted before this campaign or the things that would solve the problems of this campaign. And, and I think my view and imaginary Matt's view is that when people say I am uncomfortable with so much immigration, I am uncomfortable with Muslims coming into this country, I am uncomfortable with African-Americans rising to the positions of power we've seen, that they're not wrong about how they're feeling. And that one of the difficult things here is that we might have some disagreements in this country that are very difficult to resolve. Now, it doesn't mean they will only be resolved through violence. It doesn't mean they have to be ignored. I mean, it doesn't the fact that we we will have somewhat ineluctable disagreements does not is not an apocalyptic statement. I think there's been this weird tr- attempt to make Donald Trump's version of political correctness, which is Donald Trump wanting to be able to say, I can grab women by the pussy or um, we should build a wall and not let any of these rapist Mexicans in. And then folks who are within a much more elite conversation saying, you know, the real thing he's saying is that the conversation about safe spaces on campus has really gone too far. I think that's a not a real move in this debate. OK, well, here's here's the move. The Trumps of this world always exist. And the people who think it's about time those women got slapped down exist. At certain times, their views bleed into the center of the debate. And at certain times, their mm-hmm. views are locked out of the center of the debate. Um, at certain times – and the, the question is, does the center at any given moment have more in common with the fringe or does the center have more in common with itself? What has clearly happened is in the, in the Republican world, the conservative world, the fringe and the center have, have blended. Um, and there's nothing too fringe. Uh, I mean, we're not all birthers, but we're all scared of the birthers. We don't all think it's okay to assault women, but we are very ready to describe a confession that somebody has repeatedly assaulted women, women as just you know gross talk. Well, it's not. It's a confession, and a confession tells you what he did, not what he not what he says. So that's a problem. But how do you manage that? And I, uh, my view of how you manage it is you don't manage it by either validating it. You don't validate it for sure, but you also don't suppress it. What you have you have to do is marginalize it. And the, the key, the tools to marginalize it are faster improvement in material conditions, slower demographic change, and a more easygoing spirit among people who recognize they have more of uh, more in common with the state. There's a great article by Jamie Kirchick this morning where he updates an old piece by Dorothy Thompson about the Nazi era, in which Dorothy Thompson observed that people who are happy never become Nazis. And, and I sort of look at my where people. Who, Is that really true in 1930s Germany? Well, Dorothy, Tom, I wasn't there. Dorothy Thompson was a brilliant journalist. That she described it. She had a whole, who were the people who were vulnerable to it? And mm-hmm. she said, the happy people. Happy people were not. People who valued kindness and they were just somehow immune to it. And other people did. And even more who became an American apologist for it. If all the people, if it, all the people who have more to lose from politi- from bad politics than they have to gain from good politics were to recognize we have more to lose in I wrote a piece that, um, yesterday about why I voted for Hillary Clinton in this election. And this is about institutions. And I don't agree. I don't buy the idea that she's a secret centrist at all, nor do I agree that she's someone who's good at working across the aisle. She's terrible at it. It doesn't matter. She believes in institutions and will uphold them. And the institutions that have protected me during the Obama era and that protected you during the George W. Bush era, we need those institutions more than we need anything. This is a good bridge because I want to make sure we do talk about Hillary Clinton who – I think is likely to win the election and, and, and who you have some interesting thoughts on. Give me your optimistic scenario for a Clinton presidency and your pessimistic one. Oh, um, 
the optimistic scenario is that she wins the presidency decisively, does enough damage to the Republicans in the House and Senate to jolt the party, not enough to gain the right to govern the way she would like to, and that both sides look back on the Donald Trump experience and say, whoa, we need to de-escalate this game. We need to rediscover some new ways to work together. And that means with Hillary Clinton that she advances the least divisive parts of her agenda first. Which do you think those are? Um, infrastructure program. In the finest traditions of American wasteful spending and long run, <laughs> <laughs> making everybody happy. Yeah. Everybody's got a project they want. Yep. And the country always believed it could afford. I'll take, I'll take them all. Thanks. Uh, sure. And it's only because we've lived in this world of imagined and false fiscal constraint. I think that's one of the things that has made the politics of the past eight years so difficult is that we said, well, there isn't enough to go around. So we all have to, well, what if we just buy everything? <laughs> that's the American way. Believe the future. Get Rediscover our belief that the future the will pasta be. pasta and the chicken. <laughs> exactly. Because our grandchildren will exercise so much that those calories will be yeah. burned 75 years from now. On judges. So you know what the Constitution says? Advising. I'm not going to send them a series of judges who pay off constituencies of mine and who I think because they're old or white that the Republicans will regard as – I'm going to actually call in two or three people in advance and say, let's work on an agreed list of names. I pick. I'm going to pre-clear some people with you. So this will be less – and that means I don't get what I want and you don't get what you want. But we find people we can live with, technocrats, people with more mysterious views perhaps. She becomes a foreign policy president. I mean we've just had an attempt by a hostile foreign power not an attempt, an act by a hostile foreign power to manipulate an American election. There has to be a mighty price exacted from well, Russia. What do you what think? I mean, I think this is something that we have not even begun to talk about. And I, I talk actually, about it all the time. Well, I, I think this is something that I have not even begun to talk about. What I can't even begin to think about what happens with the American relationship with Russia after the election. What is the mighty price that comes for trying to manipulate an American election? American spy satellites must have very clear images of every one of Vladimir Putin's houses. Let's post them on the internet. Show the Russians how he lives. We probably have a lot of information about exactly where all of his assets are and how much he's got. Publish them. Are there tapes of that Vladimir Putin talking on his phone overheard by American spy satellites? And don't do it surreptitiously. Do it. If there are Russians who are – the identity of any of these hackers are known, they must never be allowed to set foot in a NATO country ever again. Um, their visas are these are persona non grata. And if there are local people who have been involved with this, they should be prosecuted. We may need new laws about, about privacy. I mean, what happened to Neera Tandon? I mean, it's, you know, fortunately, she happens to be a very wise person and all of her, you know, invaded privacy only makes her look better. But it's easy to imagine that somebody would say something grumpy or bad tempered or something, you know, who has not said something about someone they love that they regret? You know, that's why we have privacy. So we can, you know, you know, we can ventilate about people we care about. And then, but would we like them to see what we said in a moment of ill temper? Well, that's, that's what happened to Podesta and Nira Tanta. And as I say, they personally, I think, come off quite well, but they're human beings. And, that, I mean, uh, and maybe there's, we need some, some revisions to law to say, you know what, that should, it should not be legal to publish somebody's e emails without their consent. By the way, I don't understand why Hillary Clinton had this secret server in order to prevent Congress from subpoenaing her emails. Why does Congress ever get to subpoena the emails of a serving Secretary of State? The British have a 30-year rule. We should have a 30-year rule. It should just be, you know, you should be able to say you don't need the secret server. You use the government server, which is protected, and your emails will be published after you're dead. So one thing, I, I want to put some of that to the, to the side because I would actually love to talk a lot about that, but I worry we don't have the time. But to the optimistic scenario there, 
I think one of the big impediments is going to be that the quickest way for a fractured Republican Party to unify will be to unify against Hillary Clinton. Right. Right. It, well, that's the way it should be. Right. But it will make but it with subject to norms. It will make a de-escalation very difficult. Right. Because the, in, in order to unify, let's say that Hillary Clinton hears this podcast and thinks that David Frum is a bright guy and goes for infrastructure, goes to Mitch McConnell and says, hey, what do you think of Shushan You know, goes and tries to do some of this work. The incentive is going to be, and I think this is something that we have found in recent years, it's actually very doable, not just to not agree, but to use things like Fox News to hype up the locus of the non-agreement. Yeah. To say this person who maybe we would maybe you thought was a compromised candidate, you know, there's enough information about anybody to scare the hell out of folks, particularly if you if you're really trying. How do you think the Republican Party, if you think that's not a good move, manages to somehow walk the line between, you know, being an opposition party? The point is not that they should become some kind of accessory to a Hillary Clinton presidency, but how do they walk the line between being an opposition party without Losing sight of proportionality, because to some degree, I think that's been their biggest flaw. Not that they oppose, but that they couldn't. Obamacare had to become apocalyptic. It just couldn't just be something they didn't like. Well, you you couldn't just lose, right? And say, yeah, all right, you know, kick the hell out of them next time. That you had to then sustain this fight forever and ever, and there there was no there was no off ramp. Now that is very much a Republican problem, and um, all I can say is, you know, I know what I'm going to do about it. But that leads to the more plausible pessimistic scenario. I didn't say – when you said give me an optimistic scenario, I, you didn't say give me a probable scenario. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yep. The pessimistic scenarios are much more likely, which is first Hillary Clinton doesn't do any of those things because she can't because she had this terrible scare. I mean if the idea is it's a candidate as implausible as Bernie Sanders can do as well, the Democratic Party has also changed. Mm-hmm. And it's you know because of the incredible political self-discipline of the black community, it has – remain more like a functioning party than the Republican Party has done. But the Bernie Sanders, in many ways, you can see it as it's not a white nationalist movement exactly, but you can see the Demo- that the pessimistic sections of white America who identify with the left have many of the same self-destructive habits that their Republican counterparts do. It's just they're offset by the political discipline of black Americans. So that's an incredible resource. And the question is, how long will that Hold. I mean, much of, and how much of that was driven by loyalty to Barack Obama and his personal insistence, you know, you're going to behave like regulars. You're not going to behave. You're not going to go wandering around the map. Maybe if Mormons were as important in the Republican coalition as blacks were in the Repo- Democratic coalition, we'd look a little better. But the more likely scenario is that she's frightened by her left. She adopts a confrontational approach she, because she knows she can also smash Republican organization. And if she does immigration first, she won't pass it. But she will break Paul Ryan's leadership and turn the Republican Party into a seething mass, angrier at itself than it is at her. And that, if you're going to play the game in a really rough way, I mean, that could be a very powerful move. Hmm. What is your view of her as a politician, as a human? What do you think her her instincts are? Because you've been watching her for a yeah. long time. I've never met her. I've seen her in big groups. I've never been in one of these small Groups, they're too expensive for me. So these are fragmentary and mediated impressions. And maybe they're very unfair and distorted. People say that she's very charming and funny in person. I've never had occasion to see that. I think she is a true believer um, in um, a a left liberal domestic agenda. I think she is somebody who has a very 
um, negative view of her political opponents, doesn't really believe in compromise. I mean, when she, when she the, all these instances of working across the aisle hmm. were about micro goals, better that it were utterly unconscious, better care for veterans. Who's against that? Um, she doesn't have Barack Obama's soaring vision of you know gr- greater national unity. I believe she's a true American patriot and believes in the American role in the world. I don't think she's a hawk exactly. She would be much more. She'd be much more Kennedy, much less Truman. That said, she believes in the country and believes that it is entitled to defend its interests and is unswayed by the argument of certain democratic legalists. Well, you know, if Borneo can't do it, then America shouldn't do it. You know, nonsense. Big, big power. You know, it's not a double standard. It's just a fact. Big powers do things differently um, from small powers. If she hadn't married Bill Clinton, she would be doing something else for a living. I don't think uh, she's a natural politician. And I think, you know, she's um, she is somebody who has played by the party rules, has risen step by step through the party ladder and therefore lacks that resource that politicians need of being able to sort of speak for the country in that magic moment. Barack Obama had that gift. She would make a lot of sense as a parliamentary leader. Boy, would she. Like Boy, that. She. One thing I always think about Hillary Clinton is that she you, you talk about institutions and that she is in some ways risen as if it were a parliamentary yeah. democracy. And it just isn't. And a lot of, I think a lot of the friction around her speaks to a skill set she has, which is extraordinarily well-developed. I think she is one of the best inside politicians of this generation yeah. in a way that at a moment when inside political skills are, are quite derided. Right. But outside of his notable, I mean, Bernie I think- Sanders had been in Congress a very long time and had almost no congressional endorsements. Hillary Clinton had been there a little bit and had more party support than incumbent presidents, basically. And there's something about her where the set of skills she has, whether or not they're useful for the presidency, they are not the ones we understand how to judge because they're not the ones our system tends to display. I'm going to forget where I read this. And so I hope I have it right. But that one of the secrets of her hold on the nomination in 2016 was in the terrible year for Democrats, 2010. There are all kinds of Democrats who had taken risks Mm -hmm. for the stimulus package and other things that became unpopular. If you'd backed Hillary Clinton in 2008, Bill and Hillary Clinton came to your district and campaigned for you. If you'd backed Obama, he was too busy. And the result was all the people who would like Obama better than him all lost. (laughs) Or they didn't all lose, but a lot of them lost. Although you want to know an interesting thing about that that I I have spent a fair amount of time reflecting on because they very much have that reputation. Barack Obama's first major endorsement from a statewide non-Illinois politician was Tim Kaine. I have been very surprised and would I have never really gotten a good answer on how the relationship between Kane and Clinton emerged that someone who has basically created a permission structure for other Southern Democrats to begin and other just non-Illinois yes. Democrats to begin endorsing Obama became her vice presidential yes. well, nominee. Well, maybe once you win, it gets then very easy sure. to put these <laughs> grievances aside. But I, then one other point that what one of the things and that is related to that, what she isn't. I think we read this in the Game Change book. All the angry comments that Bill Hillary Clinton had about Barack Obama in 2008 all boiled down to this. You can't just show up with no record and a couple of speeches and become a party nominee. But the record of American history is, yeah, yeah, because there are these magic people. And some of them are frauds like William Jennings Bryan. But some of them are the real thing, like Obama, like Bill Clinton himself, by the way. I mean, although he'd he, been in the game a long he'd time. Been, yeah, and he had, yeah. he had a record. But but he he beat out many people with deeper I – mean, there, there, there are these people who just somehow channel important parts of the country in a way that people 
once interviewed many years ago, a movie actress who said, people don't go to the movies to see you, meaning the actor. They go to see themselves. What Obama is able, he's able to hold up a mirror. And this is what he did in 2008. Wouldn't you like to be the kind of person who could vote for me? And a lot of people said, yeah, yeah, I'd like to be that, that person. And Clinton has... That, that, I think that's a very interesting way and, of putting and, particularly and, and, Clinton's problems Clinton in terms says, of younger voters. Right. The bridge on Highway 32 is getting a little rusty. <laughs> <laughs> Some people say we should just paint it, but I, I think we're going to need a whole new bridge. I, one thing that I am I will be fascinated to watch with her is and, – and like you, I think the pessimistic scenarios are more likely. But I think it's going to be an interesting effort to see whether a much more old school approach to how politics works – can be a bit of a salve in a time when politics has pushed people towards a much more public communication, much more polarized, much less deal-making, much more transparent approach that is breaking down very, very fast. And I think has been, frankly, a disappointment within the Obama administration, too. I think that they have come to be a much more inside-game-oriented culture than than their supporters had believed when they were elected. And, and Clinton... Her set of skills is very much around that kind of backroom deal making. Yeah. People don't like it, but I will be curious to see if it is one way to turn the temperature down, not all the way, but a couple of notches. Well, there is this, and this then this takes us to the ultimate inside game of inside Republican politics. I mean, the, the, the question, Republicans will have to confront the question. We threw away a winnable presidential election. The tremendous and enduring damage to our standing with all kinds of constituencies, we have to win. Not just Hispanic, but college-educated women, many of whom you know will never come back uh, because not only did Tom, Donald Trump do these things, but so many people were ready to sign up to me. Yeah, you know, everybody boasts about sexual assault. Certainly, everyone I know and everyone I approve of, we all and we all do it. Who who among us has not done it? And we nearly took the republic down with us. By the way, I mean this is not just throwing away an election because we could have won um, because it was such a winnable year. He happened to be the nominee. What uh, what kind of president would he be? He's someone who has total contempt for the institutions of the country, no regard for law, and has very sinister associations with an unfriendly foreign power. George Wallace and Henry Wallace, all in one candidate. Do we have a reckoning? There's going to be tremendous recrimination. Uh, Sean Hannity threatens this every night that he is going to hold to account those Republicans who opposed uh, Donald Trump. Do they cower and submit or do they fight back and say, actually, no, we have some things to say about those who inflicted Donald Trump? And what happens to that debate? Can we find a productive path forward? And as you say, a productive path that isn't, well, let's burn down the Clinton administration, the only administration we've got. Let's go burn it down. And we can all – at least we can all agree in burning down the – we've had enough of burning things down. Um, and I mean I, I say this again and again. I mean I, I have this conversation a lot of people. We just need to blow up the system. I don't know. I think a whole pretty good system. <laughs> got some suggestions. <laughs> uh, I kind of I like it that the police arrest burglars. I kind of like that. I, I kind of like it that I can – count on the authorities not to be listening to my messages without warrants. I, I, I kind of like all of those things. I kind of like the rule of law. I wish the government cost less. I agree. I wish it delivered more services at a lower price. I wish it were less wasteful and inefficient. They do stupid things all the time. But uh, I've got suggestions. But do I want a revolution? No. I think that's probably a good place to close. We always ask the same question here at the end, which is, what are three books, not by you? that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? Oh, my gosh. There's so, so many. Um, 
desperately out of fashion book, Joseph Schumpeter's Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. It's full of false predictions like socialism is going to win. That's written in the 1942. You can forgive his pessimism. But he lays out a model for how democratic competition works that is deeply out of fashion these days uh, but that has had an imp- impact on me. So skip the socialism and capitalism chapters and read the <laughs> democracy chapters. A book that has had tremendous inf- – uh, there are a pair of books, the two books on World War I and World War II by the Yale historian Adam Tooze, T-O-O-Z-E. They're about the Nazi economy. Much of it is very technical. But one, the overwhelming message was that the central fact of 20th century politics was the world system could no longer work unless it were run by the United States. And when America absented itself, the system spiraled out of control. And in particular, the nations of Europe thought they had to steal land and murder people in order to get enough food because they did not believe that a world trading system could fairly protect them and not put them at the mercy of each other. And only American intervention um, brought us a stable world system. And then um, the book that comes into, into mind is um, uh, Keith Pomerantz's book about the Chinese economy called The Great Divergence. We asked the question, why didn't China succeed? And he's got some very complex economic explanations. But the, the main thing that um, I think people, uh, that people need to take from that is you know, a lot of our self-congratulation is based on matters of luck. My late father is a very successful businessman. Used to say, "God blesses you by making you lucky, and then He curses you by making you think you're smart." And one of the real lessons of 2016 is Americans have become very arrogant that there is this system that will protect them, regardless of what they themselves do. And politics isn't a system; it's just the actions of individuals. And if you think somebody else is going to do the civic, the republican, the responsible thing, and therefore you can be an irresponsible jerk, think again. Uh, it's you, and and you are throwing your stone at the at the glass window um, and it may be the and your stone may hit and may break that window so don't don't be don't be so certain that the american republic is here forever and that god ordained it it's up to you and if you if you don't do the right thing it will fall david from thank you very much thank you thank you to david from for his time thank you to you for your time to my producer, AC Valdez, for his time, and to Vox.com and Panoply, who co-produce this podcast for their time, resources, and support. <laughs>